If you are over the age of 30, you should be able to answer this in a moment. Where did you spend New Year's Eve 1999? You remember that day? It was, it was a very tense New Year's Eve, wasn't it? Why was it so tense? Y2K, right? We were freaking out. Yay, verily, verily, did we freaketh out. We did not know what was going to happen. If you're like under 30, ask your parents. They'll tell you about this. But, you know, uh, we had no idea what was going to happen with all the world's computers. We thought all the computers might crash. That meant like satellites are going to fall out of the sky and nuclear weapons are going to get fired off and electricity was going to be gone and all that kind of stuff. People were hoarding water and toilet paper. I know. Can you imagine people doing that? And, uh, and of course, you know, midnight struck and everybody checked their computer and everything was normal. But it was one of these big days that we had enough information to be scared, but not enough information to be right. And uh, sometimes a little information is worse than no information at all. Um, there have been other predicted dates that never came to pass. A fairly recent example, some of you will remember, is uh, Harold Camping predicting the rapture in May of 2011, and he was pretty sure he was right because he had a lot of experience. This was the fifth time he had predicted it, <laughs> and uh, his followers were so sure that he was right that many of them sold all their earthly goods and spent the money promoting that the rapture was coming and you better get right with God before. Uh, there was a group of several thousand um, Hmong believers in Vietnam who were followers of Harold Camping and they all gathered in one place for the rapture. I don't know if they figured maybe he could bring them all up faster if they were all in one place. And uh, the the Vietnamese government um, decided that it was an uh, illegal gathering. They went in to disperse the crowd. The crowd didn't want to disperse. And many people were killed that day as a result of standing and looking into the sky and waiting. Uh, people have been predicting the date of the second coming of Christ since the first century. The Essenes predicted it. They were wrong. Multiple popes have predicted the second coming date. Uh, pope Sylvester, Pope Sylvester II, he was a cool cat. I'm a dad, what can I tell you? Pope Sylvester uh, predicted that the second coming was logically going to be January the 1st of the year 1000 because it was the introduction of a new millennium, right? So this was gonna bring in the new millennium. He predicted it, um, his followers all around the world believed it, and he was wrong. Pope Innocent III in the year 1284 predicted that 1284 was going to be the year of the second coming of Christ, and he had done the math. His math was very simple. At that time, remember, this is the time of the Crusades. There's wars going on between Muslims and Christians around the world, and so to 
Pope Innocent, the Muslims are the sign of Satan's rule on the earth. And so he comes to the conclusion that 666 years after the founding of Islam, the, the year, the number that matches the mark of the beast, that must be the year. That was 1284. He predicted the second coming of Christ in 1284, and he was wrong. 1982, I knew a guy who drove a super cool blue Trans Am. It was a sweet car. And he couldn't really afford it, but it didn't matter because he bought it on payments knowing that he was not going to have to end up paying it off. I kid you not, there was a license plate frame on the back. It said, get right or get left, Rapture 82. And that was based on Pat Robertson's prediction that there would be the rapture in 1982. That car got repossessed. <laughs> and now we come to 1 Peter chapter 4, and the Bible has something to say about the end of all things. So take your Bibles and join me in 1 Peter. If you haven't been tracking with us, we've been in the book of 1 Peter now for a couple of months, and, and 1 Peter's at the back of your Bible. Uh, it's really not far before Revelation, just a few pages before the end, you find First and Second Peter. We're in 1 Peter chapter 4 today, uh, and I want to just read one verse to get us going. Verse 7, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, it says this, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. The end of all things is near. This was written in the first century. Now, was Peter right in saying that the first century church was living in the last days? It kind of doesn't seem like it because almost 2,000 years have passed since then. And yet the rapture has still not taken place. But when Peter made his bold statement, he was not predicting a date or a time, which he knew better than to do. He was simply saying that we had entered into the final epic of human existence on earth. And the first coming of Jesus ushered in what is called the last days. From the time that Jesus lived, died, rose again, and ascended into heaven, we have been in what the Bible calls the last days. Now that Jesus has come and fulfilled all those prophetic promises about the Messiah, the promises that we're waiting for have to do with his return, his second coming. And uh, I want you to turn to the Gospel of John. We're going to be back at 1 Peter, but go to the Gospel of John, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John as your New Testament begins. And I want you to join me in John chapter 14, and we're going to look at this, because Jesus had something to say about this. We've been waiting for the second coming, and here's one of the reasons. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Jesus, speaking to his disciples, says this, "'Do not let your heart be troubled.'" Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So when is it gonna happen? He says, 
it's going to happen. He says that he is going to come back. He has been preparing a place for his followers, and he's going to come back and get us. So when is it going to happen? That is a fantastic question. I think we should ask Jesus. Go to Mark chapter 13, and Jesus will help us with this. Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 32, addresses this very issue. If you have a question like this, Jesus is the one to ask. So here's what he says. But of that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Take heed. Keep on the alert. For you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning." In case he should come suddenly and find you asleep, what I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. So, so we say, we want to know when Jesus is coming back, so we go straight to the source and ask Jesus, and at least at this time, I don't know if it's still true now that Jesus has ascended into heaven, but at least at that time, Jesus, the Son of God, did not know when he would come back. The angels did not know. The uh, Son of God did not know. Certainly, the Apostle Peter did not know. Only the Father himself knows. Now, if I had to guess, I would bet that Peter and the other apostles were pretty convinced that Jesus was coming back in their lifetimes. In fact, remember when Jesus ascended into heaven, right, in Acts chapter 1, uh, an angel had to come and, and wake them up and slap them around and tell them to go back and do what he told them to do because why? They were staring into heaven going, oh, is he coming back? They're just staring into heaven waiting. He goes, hey, he'll come back. Go do what he told you to do. So I think, and when you read the New Testament letters, you see this again and again, it does seem as if Peter thought Jesus was coming in his lifetime. It does seem as if Paul thought Jesus was likely coming in his lifetime. It does seem as if John thought Jesus was likely coming in his lifetime. And they assumed that the coming soon meant like by human terms. Peter was not wrong in saying that he was living in the last days. But why is it taking so long? Well, Peter himself shed more light on this in 2 Peter. We're in 1 Peter. Go to 2 Peter. And we're going to look at 2 Peter chapter 3 where Peter addresses this very issue. 2 Peter chapter 3, which is written after 1 Peter. 2 Peter 3 beginning in verse 3. Know this first of all. That in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water." And by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, 
kept for the day of judgment and destruction by ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Why is it taking so long? It's taking so long because God loves people so much. It's taking so long because there are people that I know and love and people that you know and love who have not yet come into a saving relationship with Jesus and by his amazing grace, he is waiting patiently. And I am so thankful. I know that there were people praying for the rapture before I ever met Jesus and I am so glad he didn't answer that prayer. Right? He is patient and his calendar doesn't look like your calendar. His timing is not like your timing. In fact, the scripture teaches very clearly that God exists outside of time. Time does not have any impact upon God. And so he has told us that it will be after the coming of the Messiah that the second coming of the Messiah will happen in the last days. We have been living in those last days for 2,000 years. Um, Some of you, more of those 2,000 years than others. But we've been living in the last days since that time And um, he is going to come back, but he is waiting patiently. The Son of Man, I can tell you this, will come in the clouds with power and great glory. That day is coming. Do I know when that will happen? No. But I know this. We are closer today than we've ever been before. And as certain world events unfold it seems like we might be getting pretty close. As the world becomes more secular, as technology makes the world small enough to be run in a one-world government with one currency, as those who stand for Christ are, are often labeled as haters who deserve to be marginalized, it seems like we must be getting pretty close to the end. Is it gonna happen in my lifetime? I don't know. Is it going to happen in my children's lifetime, in my grandchildren's lifetime? I don't know. But this much I do know. We are living in the last days. And he tells us that as those who are living in the last days, we must be alert. We must be watching for his coming. So in 1 Peter 4, Peter gives us some instruction about how to live in the last days. How can we live successfully in just such a time as this? So go to 1 Peter 4 again, and we'll spend most of the rest of our time there, although you know me, I'll make you go somewhere else. 1 Peter chapter 4, let's read the whole passage for today, um, beginning in verse 7. 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. 
Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Okay. This is going to be one of those very simple sermons. One of those sermons where it's very easy to take notes. If you can count to four, you can get all the points in today's message. Point number one, as Peter begins to explain to us how to live successfully in these last days, point number one is be sober so you can pray. Look again at verse seven. The end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. And, and your different translations may use a different word than sober. Uh, the, the word sober, especially as it is commonly used in our culture today, seems like a strange word there. When we think of the word sober, we're thinking always in terms of intoxication, right? We're thinking of being sober as opposed to being drunk, being sober as opposed to being high. We're thinking about... Um, uh, sobriety in that sense. We usually associate it with drinking and drugs. It's, it's the opposite of intoxicated, sober. And, and while avoiding intoxication from alcohol and drugs is certainly an appropriate application of this principle, the actual principle is much broader than that. The concept has to do with keeping your mind functioning properly so that you can have sound judgment. He's saying that we need to take seriously the responsibility that each one of us has to keep our minds sharp, to keep our minds focused, to be informed by truth and not lies so that we can make good decisions and have sound judgment. He's telling us to stay sharp. He's telling us to be on the alert so we could pray. And it doesn't slip past me that it's Peter who's writing this. Peter, who once was told by Jesus to stay alert and pray. When Jesus went into the Garden of Gethsemane to cry out to the Father, and he was going through the worst stress of his life, and he was crying out to the Father, he said to Peter, James, and John, stay here, I want you to pray. Please stay alert and pray. And he goes off, and he's struggling, and he's suffering, and he comes back, and he finds them what? Sleeping. So he wakes them up, kicks them a couple of times. I don't know if he kicked them. I would have kicked them hard. And, and he wakes him up, he says, now listen, I need you to stay sober and alert and pray. And he goes back, he comes back again and he finds them sleeping. sleeping. So Peter knows something about the importance of staying alert when you're supposed to be praying. I feel like this book, 1 Peter, could, could also be um, subtitled, uh, Learn From My Mistakes. Because that's what Peter's constantly bringing up. We can look and go, oh, he failed in this way. That's why he's talking to us about this. He failed in that way. That's why he's talking to us about this. But why do we need to be alert? Because we're in the middle of spiritual warfare. When I'm hanging out at my house late at night, if, if you were to peer in the window 
you would find me in comfortable clothing, no shoes. You would find me reclining in my favorite seat. You would find my laptop in my lap, undoubtedly a snack and a Diet Pepsi sitting next to me. You would find the television on with Sports Center running over and over and over again. You would probably find me doing this, sort of nodding off, right? But that's my house. That's my comfort zone. What if I was a soldier in the middle of a war and I was given responsibility to stand guard while my fellow soldiers slept? Do you think I would be a little bit more alert at a time like that? That's what he's talking to us about. He's trying to help us to understand these are not peace times. This is wartime. There is spiritual battle going on all around us. And guys, we make one of two mistakes with this. We either make way too much of this and we find a demon under every bush and everything's blamed on Satan and we want to just mystically fight all these battles. Or we make way too little of this and we go, oh, come on, what I see is what's real and there's nothing going on beyond what I see. There is something going on beyond what we see. The scripture teaches us again and again and again. We are in a time of spiritual warfare. And, and Peter is going to tell us that since we're in a war zone, we better act like it. And he's going to say more about that later in 1 Peter, so I'm going to save some of that for another sermon. But for now, suffice it to say that there is a very real, very cunning, very powerful enemy who would like nothing more than to eat us for lunch. Peter, Peter calls him a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And if we're going to avoid destruction, we have to be on our toes, or better yet, we have to be on our knees. That's how we avoid destruction. By the way, this spiritual battle that we're talking about is primarily a battle that is fought between the ears. It's mostly fought in the mind. I want you to leave a finger in 1 Peter and go to 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul speaks about this issue. He had a lot to say about spiritual warfare, but I'm not sure it's summed up any better than in these three or four verses right here in 2 Corinthians 10. Here's what he says. Paul says, for we... For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We're destroying speculations, underline that word, and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge, underline that word, of God. And we're taking every thought, underline that word, captive to the obedience of Christ. Paul says, you want to understand how this warfare works? It's a battle between truth and lies. It's a battle between light and darkness. And this battle is fought in our minds. It is about knowing the truth, believing the truth, acting according to the truth. Why is that so important? Because our enemy is predictable. He is the father of lies. The truth is our weapon. And we live in a culture 
that is inundated with lies. It's very hard to, to look in any direction and not see somebody lying to you about something. Certainly, the media can't be trusted to give us the whole true story. <laughs> Social media makes traditional media look like choir boys. Uh, in schools, it's not easy to find truth, at least not of a moral nature. Our, our peers can't necessarily be trusted because they've been influenced by all of these things to have the truth. And we're going to see more about that as we move through First Peter. But for now, let's just accept that we are called to be mentally sharp and to use our minds. We have to stay alert. Why? For what purpose? He tells us in 1 Peter 4, 7. Let's read that verse for the fourth time today. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of what? Prayer. We have to stay alert so we can pray. Now, let's look briefly at another well-known passage from uh, Paul on spiritual warfare. It's in Ephesians chapter 6. I know I got you jumping all over today. Bear with me. It's in Ephesians chapter 6. Many of us are very uh, familiar with this famous passage, verses 10 through 17. Paul describes in, uh, in more poetic language the weapons of our warfare, uh, and he talks about how we're supposed to arm ourselves and put on the whole armor of God, and, uh, and that armor consists of things like salvation and righteousness and truth and faith and the word of God, and that's the part of the passage most of us are fascinated with. But don't miss the way he wraps it up in verse 18. Ephesians 6, 18. We take on all this armor with all prayer and petition. Pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Sound familiar? There's a theme, isn't there? Every time he introduces this idea of being attacked by the enemy, facing spiritual warfare, he tells us that essential to the whole thing is that we be on the alert so that we can pray. Prayer is essential to the Christian life. And most of us who are Christians, we have experienced that during times of great difficulty. We pray like crazy in the hospital waiting room. We pray like crazy when we're waiting for that phone to ring and find out where that person who's late actually is. We pray like crazy when those papers get served and we're gonna have to appear in court and we don't know what's gonna happen. We pray like crazy when we look in the rearview mirror and see blue and red lights. We're good at praying during times like that. But almost every Christian I know has admitted that it's during times of ease that we tend to drift away in our prayer life. We stop being so alert. We stop living as if we're in a war. We stop being on guard. And so he tells us that in order to pray, we need to be alert, we need to pay attention, we need to keep our minds focused. 
And we're gonna be saying more about prayer and spiritual warfare as we go through the rest of 1 Peter. But for the sake of time, let's move on to the second thing that Peter tells us is necessary for us to thrive in these last days. 1 Peter, let's go back to 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter four, verse eight. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. The second essential component to thriving in the last days is that we love one another fervently. He says to love one another fervently. Folks, I don't know if you realize this, but we desperately need one another. We were not created to be Lone Rangers. Even the Lone Ranger had Tonto. And without Tonto, he would have been toast in every episode, right? right? We, we need one another. God has created us to operate in community. When we are outside of community, when we're trying to do this on our own, no one ever thrives. You cannot thrive when you're apart from one another. We need to be loving one another and we need to do it fervently. Fervent love. And fervent love takes effort. It takes commitment. Fervent love does not say, I love you if. Fervent love doesn't say, I I love you when. Fervent love doesn't say, I love you because. Fervent love says, I love you, period and I'm gonna keep loving you. Fervent love says, I got your back. Fervent love says, I will not give up on you. Fervent love says, I will do what I can to meet your needs. Fervent love says, I'm gonna love you enough to help you when you need encouragement, and I'm gonna love you enough to challenge you when you need to be challenged. Fervent love says, I am here for you, and I'm asking you to be here For me, you and I are called to love each other like that. That's how we thrive in these last days. So, lest we actually get practical and have our lives changed by the word of God, maybe we should ask this question. How are you doing at fervent love for other Christians? How are you doing at weaving your life together? Are you doing the Lone Ranger thing? Are you letting other people do the Lone Ranger thing when you ought to be going after them and loving them? Are are you recognizing needs in people and looking for ways to meet them? Are you there for people even when they are disappointing you or even when they are wandering off? He's saying to us, not just to me, not just to you, but to us, he's saying to us, we are in this together and we have to be fervent in our commitment to one another in order to thrive in these last days. But that's not all. Look at verse nine. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. The third thing is to be hospitable without complaining. Now, When I think of the word hospitality, I think of my wife. She is gifted in hospitality. She's incredible with hospitality. Um, If if we're gonna have guests coming over for a special event or a party or something like that in three weeks, 
she prepares the entire house now and the rest of us have to just sit in a corner and we can't touch anything <laughs> for three weeks. And there's a theme to the event. You better believe there's a theme to the event. And we will have hats and shirts and we will have matching napkins and we'll do all of that kind of stuff. She is amazing at that. She's incredible at meeting people's needs, making them feel comfortable. Every time we, we go to, say, a... Uh, you know, let's say a memorial service together and they're having food afterwards. She, she doesn't go out and mingle with the people. She goes straight to the kitchen, goes, how can I help? And she just starts serving. When I think of hospitality, I just see this picture of my wife pop up in my head and usually she's giving me that look. But that's the picture I see. <laughs> but the biblical idea of hospitality goes much deeper than that. The Greek word literally means to care for strangers. When he tells us that we're to be hospitable, it's the same Greek word that gives us our English word hospital. So when you want to think about hospitality, think of a hospital. Now what's a hospital? It's a place where you go when you need care. And people who you don't know, doctors and nurses and people like that, Focus their attention on meeting your needs. Your stay in the hospital becomes much more bearable when you have good doctors and good nurses. Having spent my share of time in hospitals, either as a patient or, uh, you know, one of our daughters has had multiple, multiple surgeries and spent a lot of time in hospitals, and I've spent a lot of days just sitting by a hospital bed over the years, and and I can tell you this, a great nurse makes all the difference. Any of you who are nurses, God bless you. Those, those people who actually seem to be doing what they're doing because they care changes your experience dramatically. I love the fact that God calls so many believers to be nurses because those nurses are making a massive difference difference. If the nurse seems to put your needs above her own, if the nurse is compassionate and caring, if that nurse, if he, if he helps you get through the rough patches without complaining about the fact that he's doing it, your stay in the hospital becomes much easier. That attitude that we look for in a nurse is the same attitude that Peter is telling us to have toward others as we seek to stand firm in these last days. And don't miss the last part. He doesn't just tell us to be hospitable. He tells us to be hospitable without complaining. You see, <laughs> hospitality is going to cost you something. And the nature of hospitality is that it's draining. But it's not about you. It's about the person you're serving. So picture this. You've been invited to a fancy wedding. You go to the wedding, you enjoy the ceremony, and now you go to this fancy ballroom, and there's going to be a reception, and it's, you know, fine china and crystal and champagne and great food and all that kind of stuff. And, and it gets to the point where the bride and groom are coming from table to table. You know, brides and grooms have to do that even though they don't want to. They just want to sit and eat. But they go from table to table, and they greet everybody, and you say, man, this food is amazing. And the groom says, well, it better be. It cost me 65 bucks a plate. You go, well, you know, the band is terrific. 
And the, and the bride says, well, I hope you enjoy it. We had to cut three days off our honeymoon just to pay this stinking band. <laughs> How's your experience at the wedding reception going now? Like, you're getting the same food. You're getting the same music. You're getting the same entertainment. All of that is the same. But the attitude of the ones who are providing it for you make you feel guilty for even having been there. Hospitality that is based in love serves others and meets their needs without resentment, without the need to be patted on the back and without complaining. And guys, that's asking a lot. You have to do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. You don't have it within you to do it yourself. So, so far we got three keys to standing firm during these last days from Peter. But Peter doesn't stop there. There's a fourth instruction in verse 10. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Point number four is that we got to use our gifts to serve one another. The Bible tells us that each one of us, if we're Christians, if we have a personal relationship with Jesus, that at the time that you entered into that relationship with Jesus, the Holy Spirit began to indwell you. And when the Holy Spirit began to indwell you, he bestowed upon you one or more special gifts. The Bible calls them spiritual gifts or special gifts. And, and those are not like things you were born with. It's something God gave you as his spirit indwelled your life. And the purpose of those gifts is not like other gifts. When I was a kid, one year I got a bike for Christmas. So you know what I did? I rode it. It was my bike. I had fun with that bike. My brother wanted to borrow the bike. <laughs> are you kidding me? Get your own bike. This is my bike. It's my gift. It was given to me. That's not the way these spiritual gifts are. The spiritual gift that you have was not given to you. It was given to the church through you. There's all the difference in the world. Some people have the gift of teaching or helps or administration or leadership, encouragement, giving, wisdom, and the list goes on. But let's not forget Those are not gifts that are yours. They're gifts that belong to the church for the glory of God. You and I have an obligation before God to use those gifts for the greater good and for the furtherance of the kingdom. Remember, it's all about God. Verse 11, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. By the way, we have any time. Um, Just real quick. From time to time, every now and then, somebody likes one of my sermons. And, and they come up afterwards, they go, man, I don't know how you do it. How do, where do you get these brilliant ideas and all this kind of stuff? You know what? If you're going to speak, do it as speaking the utterances of God. You guys, we have the word of God. What are preachers talking about when they're preaching on their latest book? Is your book better than this book? What are preachers talking about when they're talking about the latest 
psychological fad or the latest cultural thing as if somehow that's gonna change our lives. Listen, the word of God is living and active. It changes lives. So when we speak, let's speak as those who are informed by the word of God because what you have to say to someone, whether you're a preacher, a counselor, or just a friend or a parent, when you have the opportunity to speak into someone's life, speak the truth of God's word. It'll change lives. And so he says, Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Once again, God wants to remind us that our lives don't belong to us. They belong to him. Our resources are not our own, they're God's. We don't exist to glorify ourselves, we exist to glorify God. If you're a Christian, he's already given you everything pertaining to life and godliness, the Bible tells us. He's already guaranteed your glorification. The least that we can do while we're here on earth in these last days is to live for his glorification by being sober-minded and on the alert for the purpose of prayer, by loving one another fervently, by practicing biblical hospitality, by using the gifts that God has given through us to serve the church for the glory of God. We are living in the last days, but that is not a reason to fear, it's a reason to rejoice. And it's a reason to roll up our sleeves and get to work loving God and loving people. In these last days, there are going to be some storms. May we all stand firm, no matter how the wind may blow, and may we experience the joy of the Lord through it all. Let's stand together and pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have blessed us to be those who are living in the last days, that we can look back on the evidence of the cross and be amazed at what you've done for us. And we thank you that you have entrusted us by your spirit and with your word, the oracles of God, that we might share the love of Jesus with others. But Lord, we confess that we are easily distracted or easily bothered and caught up in the things of this life which is so short. Help us, God. Help us to be people who follow your instructions for living in these last days. That the world might see the difference and know that you are God and be drawn to you. For we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.